Well, beloved, we turn to the Word of God for a reading from Paul's uh, epistle to the Colossians. Um, If you have a church Bible, that will be on page number 1807. We read from the New King James in the church, uh, but if you've got an NIV or an ESV, different translation, you should be able to follow it without any difficulty, okay? Um, now, Paul, Paul's purpose in writing to the church at Colossae is to show that Christ is preeminent. First and foremost in everything, Christ is preeminent. And the Christian life should be a life that is um, uh, you know, giving Christ a priority in all things. Um, Believers should be rooted in him. Believers should be alive in him. Believers should be hidden in him. Believers are certainly complete in him. It's uh, completely inconsistent to, uh, to live without Christ if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing, you know, to uh, exalt Christ in this little epistle. And after the um, introduction where Timothy and himself are giving thanks for the conversion of the uh, saints at Colossae, he he begins to say in verse 9, and we will read through to uh, verse 23, but he says in Colossians 1 verse 9, this is the word of God, for this reason uh, we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us, from the power of darkness and conferred or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and that by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached 
to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to your precious word and the proclamation of that word, we know that the flesh can have us thinking about a hundred and one things other than what we should be thinking about. We are engaged in a spiritual conflict here. Uh, we know that Satan will seek to steal away the word of uh, the seed of the word immediately that it is sown. So, Lord, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, so that what is said, what is heard, what is understood, what is believed, and the bed, may all of that translate into our lives being increasingly conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of this fruit that we have been looking at over the past few weeks. Here as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, friends, this, those of you who are visiting, this is our uh, third seg- uh, segment in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. We've dealt with love and dealt with joy in previous weeks. We come this morning to peace. The Lord Jesus Christ explained to his disciples when he was with them that they would be recognized not by a particular form of dress or even by a particular way of speaking, but rather they would be identifiable in terms of the fruit in their lives, how they lived their lives. Honestly, how you live your life, I would argue, would be reflected in what you say and also in how you dress. Um, But we've noted also that this fruit is singular. It's not plural. The fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruits of the Spirit are. There is one fruit, and these nine graces of Christian character together form one indivisible uh, fruit of the Spirit. Unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which are given to each person individually as the Lord uh, God determines for the benefit of the body. Uh, The the fruit of the Spirit is is one. Now, why study the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the obvious implication in studying this, and this is quite a challenge, but the uh, obvious implication for the study is that if Jesus Christ lives in us, if we are saying we are Christians... If you're saying to your neighbors, to your friends, to your fellow students that you're a Christian, then there will be fruit to prove that. Uh, They will see that in your lives. You see, this fruit is produced not by commandment, nor is it produced by law, but it's produced by life, the life of the Spirit of God in the heart of the Christian. So, with that said, I will seek to answer three simple questions in relationship to our topic this morning. 
Firstly, what is peace? Secondly, why is it needed? And thirdly, where is it to be found? So first of all, what is it? Well, beloved, here it is, bottom line. It is the peace that comes from knowing that my account with God has been settled. That on account of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross has cancelled my debt. And that my account, as it were, is in a favourable balance with the God of the universe. The word peace, as it appears in our New Testament, is a Greek word that has given rise to some girls' names. Are there any Arenes with us this morning? We've got a few young girls present with us. Any of you called Arene? No, no Arenes with us this morning. Well, maybe you know somebody called Arene. Or you've got an auntie Arene. You know, somebody somewhere along the line will uh, know somebody called Arene. That comes from the, the Greek word that's translated paste here. Uh, it's, a, it's a familiar word. It's the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew word. Now, if you don't know any Hebrew, you will know at least one Hebrew word. And it's the word shalom. Uh, and so this is uh, where the word uh, peace or earning comes from in the, in the Greek. It's, uh, it's uh, a peace that is not simply the absence of something. It's uh, not simply the absence of tor- turmoil or the absence of conflict. Um, obviously it will incorporate that. But it's also the presence of everything that is necessary for the wellness, for the well-being, and for the good of the individual. So, for example, if you read the book of Leviticus and the Levitical blessing, uh, we sometimes use it as a benediction. Uh, You remember the progression of that ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, the light of his countenance upon you, and give you his shalom, give you his peace. And that shalom, the reality of that peace, I get this, friends, the reality of that peace cannot be discovered without the light of God's countenance and the blessing of his grace and his goodness. Remember that it was this shalom which formed the song of the angels when the shepherds, hearing the sound in the night skies, realized that they were singing shalom. Glory to God in the highest and on earth shalom. And on earth peace toward and goodwill toward all men. So what is it? It's this, if you like, it's threefold. It is, as I've already said, it is with, uh, peace with God. It's also peace with others. When Paul writes to the church uh, at Rome, he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And it's also peace within. So peace with God. Peace with others, peace within. Now the within part, 
That will be the focus of the remainder of our time here this morning. Now we sang an opening hymn. You know, some of the lines, Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear. Uh, And maybe as you were singing that, maybe you were saying to yourself, well, what's all this worry about? What's all this anxiety about? What's all this care about in my life? You know, all of the fears that gripped me during the course of the past week. What was all that about in the light of our opening hymn? Well, you know as well as me that that fear, that anxiety, that care, it's a reality, isn't it? So how do we fit these two elements together? Peace and worry. Peace and anxiety. Why is anxiety such a part of Christian experience? Well, God willing, that will be answered as we proceed and move on from this first point to our next couple of points. So moving on, what is this peace? Why is it needed? Now, the answer to that may seem obvious. After all, the world is undeniably lacking peace. Our world today, a world in which conflict and chaos, if they don't reign, they certainly, they are present at every turn. You know, a reading from history reminds us that it's been been this way from the, the beginning. Cain and Abel, when sin entered into the world, they're immediately at war with one another. Brothers and sisters are at war with one another. Parents and children are in conflict. Husbands and wives are in conflict. And if you read the history of Europe over the past 500 years, are any of you doing history? No, no history students among us. But if you read history. In the last 500 years, it's been the arena. Europe has been the arena of almost constant conflict. Seen in the changing map of Europe, both with, you know, eastern, western, uh, you know, the borders, even within our own lifetime, the lifetime of some of us here. uh, Some of those uh, boundaries of nations are all tied up in part Uh, due to the issue of war and conflict. Since the 16th century, it's estimated that there have been 8,000 known peace treaties signed. Now, they were obviously signed with the intention that peace would last forever. And we're told, history tells us by and large, that most of them lasted no more than two years. Think, for example, of the Middle East even in this last quarter of century, the numerous attempts by different individuals to bring about lasting peace, and hardly is the ink dry on the document, then the whole thing's unraveled. And of course, the classic example is Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain. September the 30th, 1938, having just disembarked from his aircraft at Heston, Airport, waving that sheet of paper in his hands, and you can still see the the news footage. You can see. Have you ever seen the iconic photograph of him standing with all the photographers and all the journalists around him, the dignitaries? There he is, waving 
this sheet of paper and he's saying, I've just returned from a meeting with her, Hitler. And out of Hitler and I have decided that there is no, going to be no possibility of conflict between Britain and Germany. Do we really want to go back to what happened 20 years before in that great war? And so Herr Hitler and himself had agreed that we will live happily together. And Chamberlain, on that occasion, confidently echoed what was Benjamin Disraeli's phrase. Some, what, uh, 60 years before. In 1878, Benjamin Disraeli had returned from Berlin, the Congress of Berlin. And he said, I have uh, returned from Germany with peace in our time. Neville Chamberlain, the steps of that aircraft, September the 30th, 1938, is saying, we have peace in our time. And less than a year later, as many of you know, 84 years ago on Friday, Germany invaded Poland. Britain gave Germany an ultimatum. And 84 years ago, at quarter past 11, on the 3rd of September, this very day, people were gathered around the radios. And they were hearing Neville Chamberlain say, Britain is at war with Germany. And as I say, this international conflict is reflected in our personal and interpersonal relationships. And the upshot of it all is that we're at odds with one another. We get anxious. We get stressed. Boy, stress is a trendy word these days, isn't it? Many of you said during the course of the week, I'm stressed out. I'm stressed. The word is used so much that we think it's been around for ages. In fact, stress is used in our contemporary vocabulary and as a part of our human experience at this point in history is a relatively, relatively new usage of the, of the word. It came about as a result of research paper written by a Hungarian doctor had to do with psychology endocrinology and all sorts of other chronologies and ever since then stress has been basically front page it's been big business there are institutes of stress dealing with stress the stress of daily life with corporate stress combat stress not new combat stress after the Vietnam War, it was late 70s, early 80s, they hit upon, you know, PTSD. You know, people affected by stress are wanting to learn more about stress can enroll in some of these uh, institutes where you can, quote, where leading experts on life and the universe will provide cutting-edge theories about who we are and what part of the puzzle of the universe we fit into. My friends, I'm not mocking stress. 
not mocking anxiety, not mocking meltdowns, being unable to cope in the sin-cursed world. They are real and serious issues. The claims of the experts cause me to raise my eyes. But the reason, the reason you see I mention all of this, the reason that such institutions can exist and the reason that such conditions can exist is because of the reality of the absence of a deep-seated peace in the human heart. And consequently, people are prepared to try just about everything and anything in order to settle that issue of the heart, the psychological and the emotional effects of stress and anxiety, etc., can be so debilitating that some poor souls, like the woman with the issue of blood in the Gospels, spend everything that they have seeking a cure. My friends, we are here at this point in this sermon. We are here because we have asked the question, why is peace needed? Well, the Bible gives us the answer, and it does so categorically. The Bible says, ABC, that we are, A, we are by nature, A, alienated from God. We are, B, in bondage to our own sinful desires, and C, we are in conflict, not only with God, but with others, and also obviously with ourselves. The Bible says that the wicked cannot know peace. So, by nature, we are sinful and wicked, and therefore, it's impossible to know this peace without Almighty God. This is, in fact, what the prophet Isaiah says. Prophet Isaiah says, the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mar and dirt. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? The idea of these constantly moving, turbulent tides churning things up. And we see this lack of peace internationally, you see it interpersonally. Let's be honest, as I say, we see it in ourselves. So the great need is the need that the Bible confronts us with, namely the need of peace with God. So thirdly, where is it found? If our great need is peace with God, where is that peace to be found? In short, here's a short answer, it's found in God. He is the God of all peace. In other words, peace is not found in a program, peace is not found in the philosophy, but as we have read in our Bibles, it's found in a person. In fact, Jesus Christ, as he's getting ready, you know, to depart this world, um, and he's with his disciples, and John records it for us in that upper room discourse beginning in John chapter 13. And uh, Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be distressed. Let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be anxious. And he says, You believe in God, believe also in me. And then towards the end of the discourse, he says to them in John 16, verse 33, he says, I have spoken to you. That in me you may have peace. 
You got that? I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Think about that for a moment. He doesn't say in my ideas you have peace. In obedience to the commands of God you may have peace, but in me you may have peace. In other words, he says what no one else in all of human history has been prepared to say. And rightly so. You don't find the Buddha saying this. You don't find Muhammad prepared to make such a statement. He was telling his followers to take the head of the infidels. Put them in bondage and keep them in bondage. You don't find it you don't find this in the essence of Hinduism. You don't find it in any of the comparative religions. These religions may be prepared to say we can help you with karma. We have a philosophy here, an idea there, a concept there, a construct here. And if you will embrace these things, you may find, if you apply them to your life, a degree of peace. And if you sit there quietly with your legs crossed and your index fingers touching your thumb and go um for an hour, you know, maybe you'll get it. These are the kind of opportunities that we're offering you. But here, standing on the stage of human history, is a Galilean carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. And he gathers his disciples around him and he says, Listen, beloved, in me, I've told you all these things, that in me, you might have peace. So where is this peace found? It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if I am outside of Christ, there is no peace. I need to be in him. And he in turn needs to be in me. And that's why we read from Colossians chapter 1. Because if you think about it, and hopefully you are thinking about it, you will be saying to yourself, well, on what basis does this Galilean carpenter from Nazareth, the back of beyond. What gives this carpenter the grounds to say, in me, you will have peace? So then you've got to figure out who this carpenter from Nazareth actually is. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now listen to this. For by him all things were created. Not over millions or billions of years. But they were created by him when he spoke. And he spoke all these things into existence in the space of six literal deaths. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. By him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on heaven or things on earth, making peace through the blood of his cross. It is this person, beloved, who says in me, you may have peace. Now this peace is far more than simply the absence of warfare. 
It's talking about a peace that is more than simply an inner well-being. It's not talking about that which is simply the calming of troubled spirits, but it's that which is three things. Okay, number one, it's essential. Number two, it's spiritual. Number three, it's eternal. Okay, essential, spiritual, eternal. You see, the Bible is like a good physician. It examines us and gives us an honest diagnosis. A good physician will give us a straightforward diagnosis. Hopefully they'll do it gently, they'll do it kindly, but they must, if they are true to their oath, will tell us the truth. Now, it's not always easy to take it, but it's always essential. So when people ask themselves, I wonder why my life, I wonder why my life is like a, a, a ship that is tossed on a stormy ocean. Why is it, you know, that I feel to take one step forward and two back? Why is it that despite, you know, all my endeavors to try and fix it, to try and cure myself, life is still like a great tossing ocean, throwing up this and that and tossing me everywhere. So we turn to the Bible, and this is what it says. The reason that you are the way you are is because you're at enmity with God. You see, the problem's spiritual. You're alienated from God who made you for a relationship with himself. God's chief, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So both your rebellion and by extension of his righteous wrath, we are enemies with God and there is no peace so long as the conflict remains. And the solution to the conflict is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, Bible, the Bible speaks so clearly about it. The Bible tells us how and where that peace is found. You know, the folks here in the congregation are well aware that, you know, I've cited on a number of occasions. Give me age away here. You know, I'll quote lyrics from pop songs in the 60s and 70s. And it loses some of these younger ones here. Chris is always telling me, don't know what you're talking about, but I get the gist. And in all these questions, have you listened to any of those things from the pop songs from the 60s and 70s? All, all of these questions and longings from the hearts of a dissatisfied youth. You know, we're still living with the consequences of the upheaval of that cultural revolution back then. But they asked the questions. Is the answer blowing in the wind? You know, we need to find our way back to the garden. You know, those longings. They're asking the questions, but they weren't interested in the answer. You see, when the Bible says to us and the, the Bible speaks to us, you know, the Bible shines light onto all of those questions. It's like an image from, from an x-ray. You know, when you get an x-ray taken, it's just like a blank, a black sort of sheet. And then to put it up onto the light, 
and the light shines through and the doctor says, uh, that's the break there. And you see that shadow there? And you see that shadow there? And as the light shines through and shines those things up, you're going, oh dear, I'm in trouble. And so when the spiritual x-ray goes up, the light of God's word shines upon those questions and those hearts and those lives. The diagnosis is not good. And so much of humanity responds in the words of the Beatles. We can work it out. Hi. Well, just give peace a chance. That's all we're saying. Give peace a chance. But no one gives peace a chance because you put before them the Prince of Peace. And what happens? As soon as you put forth the Prince of Peace and his death on the cross on behalf of sinners, they scoff, they sneer, they swear, they get angry, they throw things at you. And these are the same people who are saying, all we are saying is give peace a chance. And all you need is love. So what's needed? Well, beloved, certainly a move in the right direction when you realize and acknowledge, I need help. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help. Have you ever cried out to God for help? I'm asking you if you decided... I'm not asking you if you've decided to rearrange the externals of your life. I'm asking you what the Bible asks you. Have you ever, like blind Bartimaeus, cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me? Because I am alienated. I am blind. I am broken. I'm in bondage to my sinful self. I'm in conflict with others and with myself. I need help. And you see... If you do that, and some of you have done that, and if you reflect upon that day, you know, the day you cry out to God for help, you will discover what an amazing God it is that we worship. What an amazing God it is that we've been in conflict with, because this God is the God who seeks out those who are his enemies. And says, I want to make peace with you. This is the God who uh, extends his grace to those who say, I don't want anything to do with you. This is the God who says to those who say to him, I'll do it my own way. He says, look, I'll fix you. And this God pursues the least, the last, and the rebellious. It is this God, beloved, who reaches out to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, he bore the penalty that our sins deserve in order that we might enjoy the peace that he provides. Is not what Isaiah says in his prophecy in chapter 53, that he, Jesus, was wounded for our, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. You see, Jesus Christ is our shalom. And he is essential for all. And it's when this aspect is dealt with 
that the reality of the hymn that we sang just before the sermon, the reality of that takes root, a hymn anchored and grounded in sorrow and faith, written by a father grappling with the natural natural disaster and death. Some of you know the, the story behind that hymn. Horatio Spofford, Chicago lawyer, friend and evangelist of D.L. Moody. 1873, he plans a trip for his family to Europe. He sends his wife, Anna, and four daughters on ahead. Annie, 11, Maggie, 9, Bessie, 5, Tanyetta, 2. And those four daughters died in a shipwreck as the, the ship sank in a storm. And Anna, his wife, sent a telegram to him as began, saved alone. What shall I do? And Spofford quickly sailed to join his wife and midway across the Atlantic, the captain of the ship that he was sailing in told him they were near the place where his daughters drowned. So much tragedy, so much sadness in the loss of those daughters on the way as he made his way to Le Havre. What possessed him to have that pointed out to him? The spot where the ship went down and then take to his cabin and write those lines when peace like a river when sorrow like sea billows roll. And then my sin of the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, beloved, this is the real issue. The real issue for you and for me is this, because by nature we haven't known this peace, and the problem at the end of the sermon or a conversation with people about needing peace with God is often, you know, well, it's, what does it really matter at the end of the day? Friends, this really, really matters. Because, you know, we're going to face God someday in judgment. We're going to come face to face with this Prince of Peace. I will either encounter him that day as he is the king of peace or we will encounter him as he is uh, as judge. Have you ever repented of your sin? Have you ever embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? You see, I'm emphasising that peace is found in the person who is described in Isaiah chapter 9 as the prince of peace and is to be found in coming and receiving from him all that he made available by his death on the cross. So there's good news for a person who has the unfulfilled longings for peace, who has the unanswered questions about death and life and destiny and hope. All is answered in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the enjoyed reality of those who have come to him. The enjoyed reality of a number of you here this morning. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. I need you, Lord Jesus. And you know from all that I can tell from the reading of this precious book... 
Every time someone comes to Jesus in that way, they never, never go away disappointed. And if you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your saviour, if you do so this morning, you will not go away disappointed. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea believe you, what's the answer to that? It's Jesus Christ. 